Uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government. Uh, my name is Nick Davies, and I am a programme director here. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for what should be a fascinating discussion on how to improve public services. Uh, public service performance is something that the Institute has an abiding interest in. Uh, we have just published uh, the fourth edition of Performance Tracker, which is our uh, data-driven analysis of nine key public services, including uh, hospitals, adult social care, children's social care, prisons, and five others. Uh, sadly, uh, for those with an interest in uh, public services, it does not make particularly happy reading. Uh, although we think that public services have become more efficient uh, since 2010, that has largely been achieved by capping public sector pay and asking uh, the public sector workforce uh, to work harder. Um, but with consistent overspending and chronic recruitment and retention problems right across the public services we look at, it's questionable whether those efficiencies, if they were genuine efficiencies, uh, can be maintained going forward. And it has come at a cost. Uh, because we think that all the public services we have looked at, their performance has declined, either in terms of the scope of the services that are provided or in terms of the quality of those services. Now, after a decade of uh, spending restraint, all of the political parties, to varying extents, quite wildly varying extents, are promising to invest more in public services over the next uh, five years. There's big questions about how they can ensure that that money is spent well, uh, how you can reduce wasteful spending, deliver high quality services, and how uh, public sector leaders, be that uh, politicians or civil servants, can be held to account for the performance of those services. So big issues, big questions that have been raised uh, in this election, and fortunately we are joined by an excellent panel uh, to discuss this. Um, so uh, our first speaker will be uh, John Seddon, uh, leading management thinker, the uh, MD of uh, Vanguard, uh, and the author of numerous books, including the recently published and excellent uh, Beyond Command and Control, as demonstrated here by my assistant, <laughs> um, which is available in all good bookshops and also on our landing just outside. Um, so John's going to speak a bit to some of the key themes in that. Um, we'll then have uh, responses from our two other speakers. So uh, next up will be Cathy uh, Evans, who is the uh, Chief Executive of Children England, which is the representative body uh, for children's charities. And she has long experience both on the front line and in national policy making and is an expert in public services for children. And our final speaker will be uh, David Walker, uh, contributing editor uh, to the Guardian Public Network, a former director at the Audit Commission, and an author of a very good report last year on outsourcing and PFI. Um, so following opening remarks, there'll be an opportunity uh, to ask questions. So do think of questions during the opening remarks. Uh, and in the meantime, I'd uh, encourage those both watching here live and watching live on the live stream to tweet about it uh, using the hashtag IFG Public Services. And with that, I'm going to hand over to John. Uh, thank you, Nick. Uh, uh, good evening, and thank you all for coming. Uh, so how to improve public services? Well, you know, we could start 
by understanding how some leaders of public services have achieved astonishing results, much better services at much lower costs. So, for example, I'll, I'll take two examples, which I talk about in detail in the book. <coughs> People-centred services, so things like care systems. Uh, there are places where uh, they are helping more people more effectively, um, and therefore increasing their capacity, uh, doing so at lower costs, and in those geographies, demand for services falls. Well, these are astonishing results. So, <coughs> with housing repairs, I could take, I'll show you places where they deliver repairs to tenants on the day and at the time tenants want them. I mean, BT could do that, we'd all cheer. Okay, and they also do this at 20 to 40% lower operating costs. These are these big numbers. <coughs> the, the thesis in this book, and I should say, not that you should copy them or codify what they do. Okay, it's how they got there that matters, and that's what this book talks about, how you get there. The basic arguments in this book are that mankind invented management, so we can change it. Now, organizations are not complex systems, they are necessarily complicated systems, and we do that, mankind does that. <coughs> there's a consensus, there's, there's a problem with command and control. Uh, most people focus on the command word, that bosses are too bossy, and we need to be servant leaders, and respect for people, and coaches, and all that malarkey. I fundamentally disagree. The problem is the control word. The way we control our organizations is the problem. <coughs> and the principal control in, in all organizations that I work in is the budget, and then measures derived from the budget. Uh, and one of the things you learn as you take this journey is if you set out to manage costs, your costs generally go up, which is not very clever. So how do these leaders learn this? Well, they don't learn it by being told it in a room. They learn it by going out and studying their organization from a different, from a systems point of view. Okay, now this is important too, because there is no plan, there's no cost-benefit analysis, there's no milestones and project management and deliverables and all that malarkey. None of that. Get out and study. So let me give you an example of studying people-centered services, because you would imagine, wouldn't you, that in a civilized society, if your life fell off the rails and you put your hand up for help, that someone would pop round and help you get back on the rails. Well, that doesn't happen. Why doesn't it happen? Well, actually what happens is you get more than a dozen people often coming round, filling in the same forms, asking you the same kinds of questions, referring you on to other people. And if you do get a service, it's likely to be commissioned, and the commissioned service won't actually meet your need. This, this creates what I call failure demand. Why is this happening? Well, because of all the controls in that system. Okay? We put controls on the first interview and the data <coughs> recording that you've got to have from these people. We set targets for the time you're going to use uh, getting an assessment. Uh, we worry about caseload management. The budget is a control, and they set thresholds on their budget uh, for the users because they're concerned about protecting their costs, uh, and so on. These are the kinds of controls that you see in these systems. Um, and commissioning is a, another control. All of these things actually conspire to reduce the effectiveness of a service. So, for example, commissioning... There's lots of, I could, I could go on, I don't have the time, have the 
time tonight, but commissioning is just one example. You know, ministers believe that we need the prices lower so we go to the market to get a lower price. If you're going to, you've got to give a specification. If you give a specification de facto, you've created a standardised service. You provide standardised services to a variety of people and it won't match the variety and your costs go up. And they go up in two ways. We give a lot of things to people that they don't need and we fail to give things to people that they do need uh, but, but that creates more demand. And this is what you see when you go out and study these systems. When the leaders see these things, they open, it opens their eyes to, well, there might be a better way to do this. And there is. So one of the telling features of adult social care systems, for example, is that more than 80% of the demand coming into the system is what I call failure demand. It's a signal of ineffectiveness, effectively. So, <clears throat> you can't get rid of failure demand by shouting at people or setting targets or... You've got to change the system because it's the system that's creating it. Okay, so how do they design these things? Uh, they think about, we help them think about three primary controls, an understanding of demand, a focus on the value work, which means giving people exactly what they need and nothing more, and measuring achievement of purpose in their terms, in the citizens' terms. What's that look like? It means that every demand that occurs, someone turns up immediately to have what we call a what matters conversation, something that doesn't exist in current policy and practice and regulatory practice, it doesn't exist. Okay, so it's to say, uh, well, let's understand you, what happened to you, what's the context, what for you would constitute a good life or a good death, what can you do to take responsibility in achieving that, and then what help do you need from your family, from the community, or from the state provision in order to help you do exactly what you need to do? And then those services are provided. That's how they serve more people at much lower costs and demand falls. Okay? More detail on that in the book. <coughs> housing repairs, the controls put into housing repairs, they're the same all over the country because they're dreamed up by policymakers and regulators. It's, it's an odd world, isn't it, where you know, people who live around here will tell people who live anywhere else how they've got to design something. You know, so the controls in housing repairs would be you've got a service level of picking up the phone in the call centre or you might currently have a target for driving more customers through your digital app rather than use the call centre because it's cost management again. And then you've got the schedule of rates. This is the thing that tells that says how long a job's going to take and what materials you're going to need. And then you've got a target associated with different types of repairs as dictated by people who live up here. Different types have different targets. Uh, and then you have activity targets for the tradespeople and you worry about the cost of materials. Manage the cost of materials. I mean, you hear this up here a lot, you know. You all buy the same things, why don't you buy them together? You'll get them cheaper. Wrong way to think. Anyway, so when you, when you take these out and study these systems, what you learn, and you always learn the same thing, because it's the same system, more than 50% of the demand on the front end is faded demand. It ain't calm, it ain't right, when's it going to be fixed, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Uh, but more importantly, when you go out with the tradespeople, as you have to if you're studying, you learn that less than 40% 40 40 of the time when you walk into a property, you fix it. What an extraordinary thing. And so again, you teach them how to think about this differently and start with demand. It's amazing that demand in terms of housing repairs is entirely predictable. If demand is predictable, then you're halfway there. Then you need to understand the time it actually takes to solve problems of various types. That then enables you to start planning capacity management, how many people you need against the demand you're going to have. 
The demand also teaches you what you need in terms of expertise amongst your tradespeople and what you need in terms of materials in their van. And the materials that they used are bought on the basis of time, not cost. Because the important thing to get right is that you're buying materials at the rate that you use them. That's how they get to a system where they've got the capability to deliver two tenants on the day and at a time a tenant wants and operate at 24% less cost. So there's just two examples. There's many more in the book. I just want to hit a couple of other issues of very limited time. You know, I talk a lot in the book about this folly of economies of scale, shared services, outsourcing. Uh, it's complete madness. Uh, you know, these industrialized service systems which are handed over to the private sector create lots of failure demand. The contracts are based on, uh, on transaction volumes. So as we create more and more failure demand, they take more and more money out of the public purse while the service is getting worse. It's an absurdity, and it's true, and it's there for all to see if you know how to look for it. Uh, IT, you know, we've had ministers saying for years we should stop spending all this money on IT, but they continue to spend money on IT. Okay, what I show in the book is that this, the problem here is treating IT as the first thing to do. Okay? What I explain and I give illustrations of is IT should always be the last thing you do. So the first thing you do is study a service uh, and redesign it. That's the so first is study it, second redesign it, and once you've got it stable then you worry about IT. And when you work that way all the code you write is used and it costs tens of thousands of pounds instead of hundreds of millions of pounds. Of course this is not an attractive proposition for the IT industry. Uh, digital services, I talk a lot about digital services inevitably in the private sector we've been very involved in this. People have gone headlong for if it's digital do it uh, and if you think that way what you do is you create things that don't work for customers, you create more demand in your call centres and therefore your total costs have actually gone up. Again this is chasing transaction costs, if you manage for costs your costs go up. Okay, So I talk about how to design digital services that work effectively You've got to bear in mind that computers work on rules, okay? So if, if, if it's something that's uh, predictable, repeatable, uh, and so on, simple, then you're going to be able to put some rules on it and it'll work digitally. An awful lot of demand in the service organisations isn't like that. You can't use digital for that purpose. And I also give Agile a spanking. <laughs> it is the most egregious fad I've ever come across in my long life, and that's enough for now. Thank you. Thank for your you, John. Kathy. Okay. Well, um, so Children England is a membership body for children's charities. And when I took over uh, in 2013, um, we, I had a real awareness that what the sector needed someone to do was to tackle the marketplace that they were, uh, were operating in. My, mem my members span everything from uh, childcare to uh, youth justice to uh, foster care, residential care, adoption, uh, youth, youth work, participation work, um, and all sorts in between. They are the veritable metaphor of a village that it takes to raise a child. And by 2013, they had been turned into a competitive marketplace to deliver outcomes. And it, it was ruining, not just, not just individual charities who were struggling to compete, um, but really ruining the nature and the dialogue and the learning that we were deriving from doing anything with children at all. And in particular, um, we, uh, so the first thing that I needed to look at, and uh, I was speaking with John outside, I am not an economist, but I ended up having to do some market analysis. 
um, and discover things like the word monopsony because the care, the care system in which children who are removed from their parents are being looked after today is one of the deepest, longest, most entra deeply entrenched competitive marketplaces. 75% of children's homes are owned and run by the private sector. A significant proportion of them are owned by hedge funders who are funding international pensions on the fees that they're getting from a marketplace for care. And so I, I, I tended, I've been tending to engage particularly with, with John's work from the angle, not just of looking at the inefficiencies and the problems of command control as management for one organisation, but the, this manifestation of the, the illusion that it is entities and managers who achieve public service uh, outcomes um, in a marketplace, and therefore they can articulate their USP, they can prove their impact, and they can go to, go to market and win the work, and that's how the Darwinian system will will ensure that we have the best quality provision. And anyone who's been watching BBC Newsnight uh, coverage of what's going on in the care system knows that we do not have that after 30 years of a competitive marketplace. Indeed, once I started doing market analysis on it, I think we're pretty close to collapse. Um, and one of the things that we've, uh, we should know is that if you decide to simulate a market that isn't really a market, it ends up behaving really quite a lot like a market it's just that there is no sustainability in it. So, um, you know, what, what we have um, is a sector that is obsessed with the idea that artificial people, i.e. organisations, the company, the charity, artificial people ha achieve whatever its workforce does. Artificial people, not real people. And that is a, 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 an essential problem um, where I think... Um, the, uh, what John uh, has written about over many years in the Vanguard Method and some of the work that we've tried to do is to re re return to the understanding, the simple truth that markets do not care about children, people do. And uh, the, the, the primary victims, aside from the, our children, of course, which I don't want to minimise, the primary victims of this marketplace approach are actually the practitioners that we need to do the best work possible because monopsony markets have driven down so that we, we have minimum wage work on, and, and companies going to court to fight to pay them less, um, looking after some of the most vulnerable people in our, in our country while they have chief executives earning po you know, postcode lottery, uh, uh, postcode um, salaries. So, so this system from top to bottom has actually drained out virtually all the profit there is to be made from children. Um, there's not much left unless private equity keeps pumping it in uh, in order for those companies to keep undercutting on price, keep operating in a shopping exercise. And so, uh, so we have a system. I, one of the questions we were asked to prepare for is if there is going to be more public money, how would we spend it to improve performance? So firstly, stop shopping. Um, you, ca you cannot buy good public service by shopping for it on a bed-by-night basis per child from organisations that have no other source of income. That is, I mean, it's, cr it's the craziest thing. If I had, it's the craziest thing. If I had sitting pounds to spend, I would not go out and, uh, on carpet tiles. Uh, carpet. I would not go out and buy it by the square tile. You know, this is how we're actually spending our taxpayers' money. 
um, with, uh, without taking any control whatsoever about who is available and who is selling care. Um, so we've, we've, uh, we've let the idea that a market will decide and will provide run loose. Secondly, I want to challenge the, some of the language that we've allowed to, to drain into our dialogue about public services through this system. One is efficiency, and I do want to challenge our host because we, we've ended up thinking that we could define an efficient public service without knowing what the practitioners think and what the service users think by looking at a spreadsheet. That is insane. An efficient public service is one that meets the need as quickly as possible and resolves the problem. And you can't know that unless the practitioner and the service user have been able to tell you that that's what's happened. Um, and uh, if we could drop our, in our, our, our obsession with innovations in terms of public service, it would be really helpful because every practitioner that I've ever met is really desperately keen to get back to doing what they came into the job to do, not to innovate away from their understanding of what their job is. So in terms of public, spend in terms of public spending, I would say, yes, we definitely need more. And I, I think it, we can't elude, delude ourselves that the kind of reforms and changes that we need will deliver savings while doing it. Children have been starved, councils have been hammered. So we need to give more, give more unconditionally, stop all the ring fencing, stop all the bidding, all the tendering. Um, give more unconditionally, water the roots of the plants of public service that we need and don't sprinkle it down from the top and wait and see what drops. Thank you, Cathy. I should just pick up very quickly on the efficiency <laughs> point. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can't I, answer I, for it. I should say the uh, performance tracker uh, focuses on uh, technical efficiency, which is basically how spending translates into outputs. You're quite right, that is not the only type of efficiency, and it does not focus on allocative efficiency, which is kind of how it turns into outcomes. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right, that is more important. It's also much harder yeah, uh, to do. For sure. So, I accept that criticism. <laughs> uh, David. Right, I'm going to use the E word efficiency several times. <laughs> um, I have to take slight issue with you, Nick, with what you said initially. Um, what, we're discussing, <laughs> what we're discussing this evening is extraordinarily marginal to the main event of this month, which is the general election. Although clearly the elections are ostensibly about the quantum uh, of public resources and maybe to some extent its geographical distribution. There's absolutely no evidence that any of the parties, Liberal Democrat in England, uh, Conservatives, Labour, are at all interested in efficiency, uh, economy, <laughs> puzzlingly, uh, or the effectiveness of public expenditure, let alone detailed questions such as audit arrangements or central local relationships. Just a, one brief vignette on that. Um, one of the achievements, in quotes, of the Cameron Coalition was the creation of uh, police and crime commissioners, which was hailed as a great innovation in the management of policing and policing resources, you will not have heard any signal mention of policing crime commissioners over the past uh, two to three weeks, and I bet you're not going to hear it uh, over the next fortnight. Uh, that aspect of public service management has disappeared. Now, let me uh, persevere, however, with the theme of this evening, despite its political invisibility. Um, my pitch is this. All organisations uh, appear vulnerable to growing entropy, that's to say the proportion of inputs resulting in outputs diminishing over time. Public sector organisations will, if unchallenged, lapse into complacency, undue emphasis on the interests of producers rather than consumers, become preoccupied with process, in short, become bureaucratic. Challenge 
can come and has come in various forms. Recently, it's been austerity, large reductions in revenue budgets. It's commonly said inside English local government circles that the big cuts in public spending since 2010, <coughs> and broadly maintained after uh, David Cameron's departure, have had beneficial effects, stimulating innovation uh, and improving efficiency. But what the evidence shows is that public sector staff will patch, make do and mend, and keep the show on the road as best they can. That's part of their ethos. Sooner or later, however, they burn out, leave, and won't come back. Look at nursing. Now, that's not performance improvement. So, don't confuse cuts, stopping the provision of a service, with greater efficiency. Not filling potholes, to use an intellectually rich example, or closing shore start centres, says nothing about cost effectiveness. Another sort of, sort of, sort of challenge in recent times has been marketisation, which uh, colleagues have mentioned. Brief parenthesis, if I may. It's striking, despite the best effort of Nick and colleagues here at the IFG, just how thin remains the factual and indeed the conceptual base for understanding outsourcing. Now, critics of neoliberalism might say that's deliberate. The rest of us might simply observe that it exposes the grand claims made by the proponents of outsourcing as ideological or wild, uh, wild generalizations from case-specific examples. Marketization, you know, involves parceling up blocks of public service into contractable form. Environmental services, a bin emptying, payroll administration, or notoriously, offender management or refugee housing. Now, leave aside for a moment the principal criticism about accountability in the exercise of public power by private companies in outsourcing. The evidence, as I read it, says that initially, yes, in the 1980s for English local government services, certain areas did show productivity improvement, but taking the outsourcing phenomenon as a whole over 30 years, the proposition that public services are cheaper or better delivered as a result of outsourcing is simply not borne out. To marketisation, the Blair government, you'll remember, added, especially in policing and the NHS, a regime of targets and terror. What was found was that central targetry can have a short run and focused effect on performance, but those effects dissipate quickly, often because political attention spans, uh, spans are too short to concentrate uh, for any period more than months. Another form of challenge we've seen in recent times has been peer review. But what happens, whether it's a permanent secretary or a local authority chief executive, when you, quote, pick peers who are your mates, or these inimitable phrases come from Barry Quirk, the chief executive of Kensington and Chelsea, you benchmark by dancing with the worst dancer, peer review ceases to be of much use. What we're left with, in terms of the project of performance management improvement, it seems to me is, and I would say this, wouldn't I, uh, challenged by independently adjudicated comparison. <coughs> Maximising the managerial autonomy of public service organisations while ensuring the fullest collection analysis and rendering of data on their costs and outputs with appropriate allowance for socioeconomic characteristics of the population they serve. And to those of you who might say, well, we've been there, done that, I say we haven't started. Cost comparisons for similar treatment of patients with similar characteristics in the NHS, comparison of refuse collection <coughs> in the same kind of house, the data that exists for these is still often partial, 
uncollated or non-existent. No mechanism exists to put such data to work. Sum up. In the public sector, performance ultimately depends upon challenge. The most effective form of challenge is data showing comparative performance. That's to say, virtual challenge. Whether with that comparison, whether with the Whitehall Department next door or a local authority with broadly the same demographic or socioeconomic makeup. But, and it's a big but I end with, comparative data can only be as valuable as the likelihood of its adoption and its influencing performance improvement. And there you have big subjects perhaps for another day here at the IFG. How to give, for example, the National Audit Office real teeth, how to better empower the Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland audit offices, and how, in English local government, to resurrect the Audit Commission. Thank you very much. Um, pick up on your point on uh, outsourcing. For those who don't know, the uh, Institute published a report in September assessing the evidence base for outsourcing across multiple different service areas. Absolutely agree that the evidence base is pretty thin. Um, we do think that in some cases the evidence leans towards suggesting that cost savings have been made, though in some cases there has been a trade-off with quality. In some cases there does seem to be evidence that competition has improved the quality of uh, services that have remained in-house. But just because outsourcing has worked historically, it does not mean that it continues to drive savings or that there isn't a case for insourcing. But on the other hand, there isn't a very much evidence base for insourcing either. Um, so I think there is, we would recommend caution in whatever approach you're um, going to take. Um, John, I'm going to come back to you because I know you have thoughts on the, on the data point. Is there, is there data that national government can helpfully collect of what is happening in local public services that will help them improve performance? No. <laughs> yeah, we had a discussion about data in uh, what's your report called? Uh, perform the performance tracker, uh, because it, it says, in there, for example, you know, all this huge, huge graph of the rise of new demand for adult care. It just doesn't square with the reality. You see that that's data that's reported through the hierarchy. Uh, there must be some system conditions governing the way those people report their data. We actually, uh, my colleagues, go out and actually study demand, real demand, over time. And there's people from Portsmouth here who've done the very same thing. And what you find when you study the real demand over time is that more than 90%, always more than 90% of the people that are presenting are not new. They're known to the system. You know, so I have a... Uh, you know, so we were talking earlier, you know, Nick was pressing me on, well, you know, so what should Whitehall measure? And I'm saying, no, no, forget about that. The most important thing to focus on is what measures can we use where the services are to help the people who run them understand and improve them. That's the most important question. Um, don't address the question of how do we run the bureaucracy, because when, when we work in very large private sector companies, once you've got the service operations running correctly, you learn that you don't need the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is part of the problem, as it has been in the UK. You know, my, my, my book, The Whitehall Effect, is all about how it doesn't matter who you vote for, they all believe the same things about how to, how to work on the public sector. They've created this bureaucracy that 
sends specifications down and demands reports up, these aren't helping. Can I, can I just uh, chip in on the, on the term demand? Because um, it is the, the, the ubiquitous term that we now use in relation to being in need of a public service. Um, and I'm, I'm completely bought into the idea of failure demand. But when we, I, I, I'm trying to encourage us all to, uh, in the children's sector to think about using need rather than demand. Uh, for two reasons particular to children. One is, one is that um, it, it, nobody is in demand of going to court and having your child removed from home. Not the child, not the family. It is, it is an incredible uh, function that's under very high pressure and being very greatly used at the moment that the state is able to do. There are reasons to be concerned about the rising number of children and families to whom that happens. But it's not a service for which anyone knocks on a door. In fact, you may, uh, many will be trying to avoid reaching such a point and getting no support to avoid it. So firstly, demand, demand connotes the idea that, that the people just are needy and need something that we're, we're either too busy or too stretched to give them. And, uh, and, and in the children's services sector, child protection at the heart of it is not a service, it's not something that most people want. So I am trying to move people away from that term, but, but, but partly because what it, uh, it, the, those rising numbers of children coming into care by state action, force in, forced action, um, it needs to be contrasted with the, the withdrawal of things, money, food, support, stable housing from families, the absence of which is driving uh, the conditions that lead to removal from care. And in that chain of events, very few children and families think, I know there's a service that I want from somewhere. <laughs> I, the, like somebody should be providing me with a service if only they weren't oversubscribed. So I, you know, I, I think there are dimensions of public service where demand uh, as a comparison with commercial customer demand is perfectly valid. In children's services, I think it's leading us down the wrong road because there is such a giant iceberg of need that, is, that we're failing to meet, uh, much of which if we gave them more, more income, family income, if we left them with more disposable family income, if we didn't make job uh, their job so insecure and their tenancy so insecure, a lot of the things that are even being classed or thought of as unmet service demand wouldn't happen. So, so, uh, so I think we need to make sure that we're keeping in mind how deeply affected the, uh, the demand for public services is by human the human experience of austerity. Um, Dave, before we open it up to questions from the audience, just very quickly, how do you, in your mind, ensure that nationally mandated data for, for audit, for assessment, how do we ensure that isn't bureaucratic, unnecessary, not related to the purpose of the service? Well, clearly there has to be a large element of collegiality. I mean, public services are generally provided by people with a professional interest. The ideal professional wants to know whether she's a teacher, a GP, uh, someone responsible for refuse collection in a local authority. A good professional will want to know whether her activities are having an effect. That, that, is a quant that has to be, there has to be at the nub of that, a quantifiable element. So if you can get professional buy-in to 
standards of data, norms uh, for quantification, I think that would go, go some way towards getting people to sort of come up, meet you halfway. Beyond that, there has to be a degree, I have to say it, of, of compulsion. Um, because that, uh, without common standards of data, each of us knowing what we are measuring, um, you can't go forward. And I, I mean, I, if I've heard, this, and I maybe haven't heard from Cathy, sort of a scepticism about data, it's, it's rather puzzling, because data surely is the handmaiden of progressive government. I can, I, so I'm not sceptical <clears throat> about data or learning or asking how we do, but what, what, I, what I witness are, um, dominate and have do, has dominated for at least 15 years is the idea that uh, setting, setting your desired data to be achieved ahead of time is how you motivate, manage, and achieve it. And I've never seen that happen. But, uh, you know, the, 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 it's perfectly valid to say this service, this, this agency, this team of people ha, ha, aims to improve the quality of life of everyone we work with. And we will keep our eye on that and measure it. But, uh, but that's translated into a data-led approach to managing people as if what we need to do is give you personal targets and that's what will make it happen rather than the autonomy to deploy your practice skills to each and every different individual that you meet in the certainty and the trust and the belief that you're trying to achieve and improve quality of life. I think it's about where the data, where the data sits in the order of priority and the understanding of how we achieve. That is the problem. Not I'm no I'm not a luddite. I love learning. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, I'm going to open up for questions. I'm going to take a few at a time. Can you please say your name, uh, where you're from, uh, ensure your question is short, and please ensure that it is also a question uh, and not a long statement. That would be fantastic. Okay, uh, so we've got one question there, and then one over there. Hi there. Um, my name's Nadine Smith from the Centre for Public Impact. Hi. Um, I would like your advice, please. When we at the Centre for Public Impact talk to government, not just here in the UK, but globally, about um, moving into this new paradigm, if you like, away from the command and control mentality, we're always hit with the same re reality, which is two things, two realities. One, um, the fear, the, the idea that our systems have been built around an acute fear of the absolute catastrophic thing happening. So uh, this idea that somebody somewhere is going to make a mistake and that we have therefore designed systems around somebody somewhere making a mistake. The second thing we're always hit with is the fact that members of parliament are still, particularly in this country, held accountable for the tiniest of things going wrong hundreds of miles away. So they design systems through not just a fear of something going wrong, but that because they are accountable for that and also because they are worried that, about their credentials about being re-elected. So they also need to create data streams that allow them to show that they were worth electing. These are the barriers towards reform to reform that we face at CPI and we hear all the time, what would you say to us and other organisations like us that are trying to push this agenda forward? Thank you. Uh, and then there was uh, a gentleman over there. It's Kirsten from We Make Waves. We're a supplier in the digital marketplace. Um, given that the government have spent the last five plus years um, adopting and pushing Agile as a way of developing their digital services, both internally and 
um, for third-party suppliers, what will it take for them to rethink and change that direction? Thank you. And then there was uh, one more gentleman there in the blue jacket. I'd like to know if David's ever actually gone into a public service on the ground, studied what's happened as a result of the Audit Commission, best value performance indicators and all that other target-led bureaucracy and never understood how much gaming, how much lying, how much cheating is created by that way of thinking. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take those questions. So uh, one on the uh, impact of the Audit Commission, uh, one on Agile, and two, kind of the question of how to overcome the, the pushback that you get um, around risk aversion and accountability. Um, so, uh, David, I might come to you first. I happened to go to an event this morning um, where Barry Quirk, the Chief Executive of Kensington Chelsea, was uh, speaking. And uh, he ended what he had to say by saying, I wish we had an organisation like the Audit Commission still that could conceptualise public services in place, not just services uh, produced by elected local authorities, but, but the array of public expenditure in a place, which was the destination to which the Audit Commission was moving uh, on its, uh, its abolition. Clearly, there were deformations in comprehensive performance assessment. That's evidenced. But the evidence also shows that that regime of producing comparative data for local authorities in England did secure measured, and you might uh, take exception to the measures, but measured improvements in performance. Um, it was a regime which gave way, as you remember, I'll be very brief, to comprehensive area assessment, which was this attempt to look at public expenditure in the round which again had an element of virtual competition in it, in that places which could be genuinely compared in terms of their socioeconomic characteristics, uh, the data showed why are you spending X amount on this service here when in a comparable area you're spending Y. That seemed to me, and seems to me still, to be a valid exercise provided that data is usable <coughs> on the ground. And that means uh, chairs of NHS trusts, local authority elected members, buying into the value of having that data. But uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Clearly, systems can be gamed. I'm not sure that comprehensive uh, performance assessment was any more subject to gaming than any other system, including systems applied internally within an individual public sector organisation. You're never going to move away from that. You can't say that gaming is a unique sin of uh, centrally derived targets. Kathy. Um So I wanna, I, I'm going to pick on the risk aversion and... Um Worst case scenario driven um, worst practice. Um, uh, so I, th I think there are some emerging very interesting er er areas of the country that have embraced not only a very different way of doing things, moving away from competition and thinking about collaboration across multiple agencies, suspending KPIs. So Plymouth, if anyone knows, they've just done a co-produced co 10-year, 26-party contract uh, Alliance contract for services over 10 years, open book accounting, and um, uh, and no KPIs. Not only is it possible, <laughs> but they have an agreement not to hold on to cases to prove that they have relevant numbers. They agree to 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 uh, share staff with each other to view uh, gaps in services, learning gaps rather than commissioning gaps, etc. It's a it's really interesting and. It's very interesting to then embrace what they've had to 
to understand what they've had to anticipate. As what the risks for any council in particular and uh, uh, of of being the next council that has a baby pee and all of the media opprobrium and the inquiry opprobrium and the uh, the ability to keep looking for blame as far back as it goes until it really hits someone that it hurts. You know, a lot of the time that that hunt to find somebody to blame who could have perhaps with the magic of uh, foresight have done something different that could have prevented a whole, uh, a whole thing that is beyond their control. We, we tend to want to keep looking for accountability until it bites on someone who, who looks perfectly uh, expendable. Um, all of that is, uh, it, it needs to be reversed and it can only be reversed by taking a different view of what it is to be accountable. And I, I'm really <coughs> struck, one of, one of the greatest fallacies I see in uh, the drowning of my sector in contracts is the idea that the contract is what keeps, or what passes on and confers accountability. That it, if it is the contract that binds you to the standards that the, you have been commissioned to follow, and if you're not, then the contract will hold you in breach. And firstly, I've never seen any council uh, actually take a, a provider to court for breach of contract. They just wait until the next time and then they change it, change uh, the contract allocation. Secondly, um, I, 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 my understanding is that there was somewhere in the region of 120 contracts out on Grenfell Tower over the years prior to it, uh, it burning down. Um, and all of them were com considered complete, fully, fully satisfied. Not one organization or human being actually stood forward to be accountable to people for the fact that there was a giant system failure, a lethal system failure. And uh, what people in that scenario wanted, it was quite clear, they wanted a human being to make an account of the council, to account for decisions mm -hmm. as a human being, not to see the, co the contracts and the, and the financials and the evidence that they'd been monitored to target and they had done the thing that they promised to do. That's not accountability. And so we have to, alongside think, rethinking what it is to serve a member of the public and how you'll know that you've done the good thing, we have to think about what it is to be accountable as a public body um, in a way that human beings recognise as accountability, not thinking that the bigger the contract and the more clauses we put in, anticipating the, more, the, the worst of possible outcomes, um, that, that means that's what will happen, because it just doesn't. John, if I could ask you to pick up on the, the Agile question in particular. Well, no, I, I really want to talk about the Agile question, but I've got a lot to say about this accountability thing, and I've <laughs> got to say this. You know, I'm a great fan of uh, Parsi Salberg. He's the man responsible for the best education system in the world. And he says, and he's right, accountability is what's left when responsibility has been taken away. It's, and, you know, <clears throat> I was on the ground in the days of the Audit Commission working in the public sector as well as in the private sector, and I saw many examples where, I, 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 you know, the, 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 the inspector's assessment of the organisation was completely invalid, completely unreliable. You know, this is why we got Haringey and Staffordshire and so on, you know. I could go into one stars and four stars. They look the same to me. And in terms of the performance, we have to measure performance. They look the same. I've also had experience, a lot of experience, of people who've done amazing things and really improved performance got punished by the inspectors because mm. it didn't tick their box. Yeah. This is going on right now. 
because the, you know, the nature of the regulators changed, but the philosophy hasn't. Okay, now I argued about all of this in, uh, um, in the Whitehall Effect. Yeah, the Whitehall Effect was the book that I wrote when I, th I decided I'm fed up of talking to people in this part of the world, because they, they're weird, you know, they, they believe in a narrative. You know, and that, this is the problem. Um, there is a systemic relationship, in, so it's in any system, between purpose, measures and method. And what, ha what has happened since Thatcher is that all politicians and regulators have strayed beyond purpose and into specifying matters of method and measures. Yeah. That constrains performance, it makes it a culture of compliance. What I argued in the Whitehall effect is that politicians and regulators should limit their statements to statement of purpose. And the people responsible, we've got to change the locus of control. The people responsible for running the services should make their choices about method and measures. Yeah. This would increase transparency. You see, in the old regime, you could lie and cheat. As long as you give the inspectors what they want, they'll fuck off. You know, and you're, you're home safe. In this, this world, you've got to declare what choices you've made so transparency would increase. Most importantly, innovation would increase. But most importantly of all, responsibilities in the place where it belongs. <coughs> the people who have responsibilities to improve our public services. So, you know, if we could design a regulatory system that way, I'd be 100% behind it. But if we go, you know, I was, I was saying to Nick before, and I, I've been asked to speak all over Europe on regulation. Why? Well, every European country's got a better regulation task force. There's a clue. Who do they put in, in charge of the Better Regulation Task Force? The regulators. Well, no wonder it hasn't changed. Yeah, we've got to rethink the way we do this uh, along the lines I've just described. Very briefly on Agile, the question was, what, what would, what's got to happen to ministers who get to wake up to the fact that Agile is an egregious fad in my terms? Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, ministers don't do evidence, you know. Um, one, I forget which minister it was. He said, oh, you know, uh, I, I, Universal Credit, I offered Ian Duncan Smith. I said, I can go into a local authority that uses my method. I can set up for you a Universal Credit uh, prototype so you can actually test the hypotheses in this. It has to be face-to-face -face <coughs> because of the variety of demand. And basically, his people said, no, it's going to be digital by default. I could have done that in seven weeks. Their plan originally was seven years, big IT system, IT first and, and agile. And the most recent ministerial statement I saw, and they've moved around a lot in the last couple of years, so I can't remember what it was, it's okay because we're doing test and learn. And I thought immediately, no, you fool, you should be doing learn and test. You got it the wrong way around. You know, um, they don't do evidence, so God knows when they're going to wake up. Private sector companies wake up pretty quickly. You know, basically the proposition in Agile is, you know, if you ran a big private sector company, would you take people off the street, say to them, you're going to have complete freedom to redesign this organisation. All we require of you is that you behave according to these roles and rituals. Would you do that? Well, those who do, I mean, you know, you know they work, how they design services? They dream up personas. These are imaginary people. And yet services have people making demand every day. You could kind of understand that and do something useful. I mean, this is uh, uh, two chapters on this terrible disease. Three chapters, I think, on this terrible disease <laughs> in here. Enough, John. Thank you. Okay, let's take another round of questions. Uh, can I have one here, uh, one here, and then 
there's two there, we'll take both of them if they're, if they're very quick. Hi, so I'm Jennifer Dixon and I'm the Chief Executive of the Health Foundation. I've worked all my life uh, for or in the National Health Service, commented on performance. Um, so my question is, is that um, if we were sitting here in the 1970s, we might be having a very different, different conversation, might we? More regulation is needed, maybe some competitive bite. So I think the question really is, how do we get to a better blend of challenge on public services that is not as ideologically heated as it is currently and has been? Is there any hope for objective evidence to help to get a better blend? Thank you. Uh, and across here. Alan Meekings, uh, Landmark Consulting. I have worked in the past with John Sitton, so I fully subscribe <laughs> to his principles of, of, of avoiding uh, uh, command and control. Uh, but in a, in a private company, as John hinted in his opening remarks, you can take senior managers to where the work gets done and help them understand, uh, as John hinted, the, the nature of the need, the demand, uh, the, how people respond. Uh, you can get them to look at how the organization is managed and they change their thinking because they see a better way. I, I guess my question is around how do we change the thinking of elected MPs? I mean, I don't want to single out Chris Grayling. Uh, <laughs> let's not, but I think the... Uh, David the, Walker the, did hint at the outsourcing of the probation service. And, you know, you could improve the probation service if you adopted John's thinking. But if you have a Secretary of the, State who insists that uh, private sector good, public sector bad, what do you do about it? How do you okay. change How do we the change thinking the mind of that level? Of MPs? Can we very, very quickly get in that question at the back there? Uh, hi, I'm Matt Dolman. I've just joined the Cabinet Office from a charity called the Centre for Ageing Better. So I'm interested in how the panel thinks we can get public, private, voluntary, everything else sectors to work together and improve public services. Great. Thank you. Uh, did you want to ask a question? Yeah, Hamish Dibley. Um, I'm an independent management consultant. It's been said that I hold the same inconsonant views as John Seddon. Um, my experience over the last 10 years working in local government. Can I ask you to come to a question very quickly, yeah, please? Yeah, yeah. Healthcare and policing is how do we connect the disconnect? Because the two challenges I think we face are we have the wrong perspective on work, we have an obsession on activity at a cost of not understanding needs, and how do, and it, it, it foretells what has been said before, how do we then seek to build the capability of leaders to be humble enough to recognize what they don't know in order to learn what they need to know in terms of understanding and improving services. And that applies from everyone from Boris Johnson to senior mandarins to people whose job it is to actually provide and run local services. Great, thank you. So four very good questions. Uh, how do we build the capability of senior leaders to understand the things they don't currently understand? Similarly one, how do you change the mind of elected officials? I wouldn't want to suggest they don't understand things, but others may take their own view on that. Um, what hope is there for objective evidence? Again, is that part of the answer to, to changing people's minds? And then finally a question of how the different sectors can work together to try and solve some of these problems. Uh, these are the final comments. I'm going to go to David first. 
fairly quickly, please. Right. Well, Jennifer, who I have to out as a former member of the board uh, of the Audit Commission, raises a fundamental question. Um, how do we get better evidence in public policy making? And we have to be very pessimistic, do we not? Whether you, whatever you think about personalities in politics at the moment, the idea that this election is being driven on data, numbers and evidence is extremely far-fetched. So the idea that the politicians who are likely to win this election are going to arrive in office on the 13th, 14th of December and start saying, yeah, I need the evidence for this policy, after having consistently, in some instances, lied, in other instances, used data extremely promiscuously is uh, difficult to, to cotton on. One might hope that the system will somehow readjust and whatever the uh, peccadillas of uh, politicians, somehow the system will push evidence back into the centre. I'm afraid I'm somewhat uh, sceptical of that. Uh, that said, there are chunks of the system which appear relatively immune from uh, politics, chunks of the NHS perhaps. Um, but um, I just want to briefly, if I may, very briefly link it with the question, profound question which Nadine raised, which it, it is related. Um, is there a cultural trend to blame such that risk-taking and indeed evidence-gathering is jeopardised? Yeah. Dean hopes that somehow a trend which is perfectly evident is going to be reversed. I'll just give you a brief example which you all know better than I. There is a movement afoot to penalise uh, providers of mental health services in the NHS if any patients commit suicide. <laughs> a, a regulatory... Now, yeah, I mean, because suicide is a terrible thing, and it's regarded by many people, including the parents and patients, relatives of patients, as an index of the inefficiency of the providers of uh, mental health services. And behind that, there's a deep and profound cultural phenomenon which blame wants to blame. We've seen this with Hillingdon, uh, with um, uh, um, uh, Grenfell, we've seen it in, in other instances. Um, people need to have someone to blame, and obviously that's encouraged by the nature of the mass media in, uh, in this country. So I think we've got quite a way to travel before we might get back to a situation where people are going to be more reasonable about judgments of risk in public services and related, prepared to use evidence uh, in, in judging how those services are performed. Thank you, David. Kathy, briefly. Okay, I, I'm going to... Um so first of all, I w I'm going to highlight that in terms of the, 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 the mess that I described of the children's care system, we have done some work to try and think about how you redesign that, and it is not simply about devolving to pure uh, worker autonomy. It needs more structure because actually we've surrendered proper structure, but it's about purpose and it's about finding a much simpler way to get money straight to the child who needs it to navigate through it to navigate the question of what they want not uh, what the service, the system puts them through from cheapest to, to most expensive and all of the human damage along the way. So we do have ideas about that and it's, I'm not averse. That includes creating a, national, a new national body with statutory powers and financial duties, but not in order to nationalise. Uh, and I would, uh, I'm happy to talk to anyone about that. It isn't in order to create a national care service. It's in order to bring national power of scrutiny and financial control over the big companies that have been allowed to run to such an extent that they're bigger than councils. So, um, so firstly, we do need to keep redesigning the architecture of government. It's not about scrapping it entirely and thinking that it will all be fine and better. Um, 
I, I don't know exactly how to change my minds, which uh, MPs' minds, which is a terrible admission for a lobbyist. But um, <laughs> but I, I do think that there are there are two sources of uh, of counterbalance to the idea that outsourcing is always better, private always better than public, um, or business is the model for public service. And one it, one is we we did Nick and I we used to work together did uh, a little piece of work a snapshot of what was being spent on the transaction costs of, of letting a contract by councils. We got little glimpses. We got glimpses from charities about how much they were spending just in order to raise the income that they got from successful bids on a five-to-one ratio, win-lose ratio. Then you add that to the councils and how much they're spending on the process of, <coughs> of whittling down from five organisations who will get nothing to, none, to one. Uh, a, a, one council on one tendering exercise had spent over a million pounds and then the competitors another half a million between them on losing contracts. And so when, once you can start to quantify uh, what's being spent on the architecture of getting service delivery contracts that don't even allow enterprise because they're so tightly specified, they look like a public service, they, they cheapy over all the public servants, uh, um, it becomes a very evident and costly merry-go-round. We need more of that evidence, and I've tried to get funding to research it. I've tried to get the NAO to research it. The transaction costs of this marketplace are staggering, and I can see it in my, in my picture head, and nobody has quantified it, but I would love someone to quantify it. And then, Sorry, I ask you to very briefly. last point, <laughs> I'm, I, I, I think we, we need a different era from the cult of leadership. I think we need a cult of, cult, cult of reinvesting in people, ordinary people, collective practitioners, being nurtured and in their skills without insisting that everything is about going up a hierarchy and finding a guru leader, because uh, that, that's the old model. But it's not because I don't believe in good leaders. Thank you. John, I'll be very course. brief. Uh, uh, Jennifer's uh, point. I think the framework I laid out earlier about changing the locus of control uh, replacing compliance with responsibility is a challenge. And I say that because this is kind of going on in Scandinavian countries at the mm -hmm. moment. And what you, what I, it was really interesting, what you learn is that people who've always been quite happy to sort of supply what they've been told to supply now have to make some choices and they find that a challenge. It's actually scarier than being compliant. Mm. Um, how do we change the thinking of MPs? We were talking about this beforehand. Uh, I think MPs really ought to get articulate about the ways in which we've regulated that have created uh, demoralisation and cost. I mean, think of all the teachers that leave because of the bureaucracy, the nurses that leave. Uh, we can connect with those people and say, we're going to stop all this, we're going to change the locus of control, and that would fit with that. And the question about how do we get uh, disparate organisations to work together? Easy. Get them to study together. Yeah. Uh, when they study together, they build a consensus. It's the same with leaders in a private sector company. You get them to study together, the politics go away because they change, they, they realise counterintuitive truths at the same time. And it builds cohesion. And they've done this in Portsmouth, they're nodding. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to bring it to a close there. Um, we are actually currently doing um, some research on the use of targets in public services. If you have any thoughts on that, please do get in touch with me. My email is on the website. 
if this has uh, whet your appetite for discussions uh, broadly focused on the election with a focus on public services and hosted at the Institute for Government, then you're in luck because we have another event on Wednesday uh, looking at whether any of the parties have an answer for fixing social care. Uh, please do join us. That's at lunchtime. Uh, thank you all very much uh, for coming today. And could you please join me in giving a round of applause for our three experts. <laughs>